Well, here we are, uh, June the 9th, 2019, lecture discussion number 67 on the book of Joel. I'll repeat that again in a minute. I let the, um, the analog congregation here, those who, who, are, who came on such a nice weekend, that um, I went through an atrial fibrillation, pretty dramatic one, on Monday night, Tuesday morning. So uh, things didn't go very well, but uh, I've managed to get through it. They sent me home, and uh, I'm still struggling with the aftermath of that. So as I explained to them, I'll be far more subdued and probably a lot more boring as a result. And uh, today is Supper Dave's birthday, if he really has a birthday, which requires that he exists. So I thought I would mention that really fast before I get going. A couple of letters from the Internet. I got one from a dear lady here that says, Hello, Pastor Cronister. I'm sincerely grateful to have found your teaching and have learned a lot. Is there a way to locate answers? <laughs> Let's note that, the, that those who came today uh, were disrespectful yeah. uh, to Cynthia. Uh, <laughs> is there a way to locate answers to specific questions? Uh, example, sign of Jonah. Grateful to your internet team as well. I don't know why you would be grateful to them, Cynthia, but um, she's from California. Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, this is one of the problems that we have on the internet is trying to identify where things may be because no one really knows where things are here. We're, what's the word uh, that we could describe? Clueless. Uh, that would be the word. We're working on it, Cynthia, uh, but uh, this kind of, because I am unpredictable, how's that? For euphemism, uh, it is hard to know what I've said and when I said it and where it is. And um, I just uh, I do the best I can. If you have a specific question with respect here to the sign of Jonah, I do know that sign of Jonah. Um, I did that on first fruits, what the church would call Ishtar, for many years. So you could probably find that on sermon audio by looking up Jonah. If Dave, if he exists and has a birthday, actually put it on. So I don't know how to answer this question. Is that a surprise? No. Do not blame me, however. Okay. And then I got this one as well from Luke. Oh, um, I got a letter this morning from Gabriel and found out Gabriel lives in Antarctica. So we have now managed to hit every continent. In this vast little enterprise that uh, Dave, if he exists and has a birthday, started a few years ago. Here's something from Luke. Hi, Gabriel. I'll get you a question next week. Pastor Cronister, I want to begin by thanking you for responding to my last letter about the tasting of the wines on the cross. It opened the floodgates. I suppose I'm still learning to ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. As an aside, he has that in big letters because that's a way that's the way I avoid saying by the way. Pretty soon I'm going to have to avoid saying as an and an aside because the internet is relentless if not if not in fact real. I've decided that it'd be be most appropriate to call a person that studies the Bible in this way. In other words, I have an inductive style. If you don't know the style that I have, it's called inductive. And it means that uh, that I will look for the questions first, try to find all the questions under the philosophy, I guess, under the methodology that the questions are critically important. If you miss the questions, then you miss the answers. So he said, uh, I've decided that it would be most appropriate to call a person that studies the Bible in this way a chronist which apparently is a, he's got it in quotations, and I would suggest that that is not horribly insulting. Anyway, to my point, and then he has in parentheses, yay, a point. So obviously he is listening carefully. I'm still trying to catch up, but so far I've never heard you reference string theory. Despite its shortcomings, it has always been striking to me that it is based on vibrational properties, just like someone's voice. Though they don't say so, I think it has fallen into disfavor because they don't like what it implies about their precious early universe. As cool as this is, let's face it, the best thing about physics is that you can totally make up a particle to fit any problem you can't solve. 
Anyway, I was just wondering if you had an opinion on this. Duh. Thanks again for your help and doing what you do despite the required subsistence lifestyle. Yours by my free will, Lucas from Southwest Ohio. Then he says this. In the last letter, you seem to enjoy the term cyclopean. If you don't know, I quote, um, I think it was Robert Duvall who spoke to John Wayne and said, pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. And so he said, uh, he adjusted it. He called me cyclopean. But I noticed that he didn't add the uh, the overweight element to it. And he said, so uh, he wanted to... I wanted another average adjective to complete the reference, he says, but he deliberately omitted it because he felt it would be mean. It's only funny when you say it, he says. I hate to disappoint you, so here's one I like, metabolically challenged. So, pretty bold talk for a cyclopean, metabolically challenged man. I just wanted to point out, as he did, that he thought I was funny. Oh, there you go, more evidence. String theory is fascinating because of many aspects. I will say this, the, vibra- the vibrational aspect of it is, in fact, interesting to me. But the duality is what I'm after, the fact that they believe that they call it M-theory, effectively, that all of the string theories, and you don't want me to start this today, but I'm just going to help Lucas out a bit. All the string theories, as Lucas is, I'm certain, aware, are believed to go to the singular if you want to call it the the hub of the wheel, the M theory. So all of them are connected. The interconnectivity and the dualistic aspect of it is what's interesting to me. And and Lucas is right. That has not escaped the uh, atheistic uh, physicists. All of this is about reconciling the two systems, if you will. Einstein's general theory of relativity and quantum theory or quantum gravity. That they are unreconcilable as we talk today. They can't be put together. So the physicists do not have a theory that fits the creation. They have a few pieces that they think are true, but they may not be true at all. And I have made the case a long time. What if gravity was non-particle, as um, Isaac Newton proposed? He saw it as instantaneous, meaning that he saw it as non-particle. Is gravity, if gravity is non-particle, then it has to be a mental property. In other words, it's not physical, so it has to, it's not a graviton. It doesn't have a physical aspect to it. So therefore, it's a mental property. That means it's a function of a consciousness or an intelligent agency. And again, in physical, uh, in philosophy, there is no physical reality. Ultimately, everything is uh, from an absolute consciousness. So string theory does have great value to investigate just because it lets you understand how atheistic evolutionary philosophy has integrated into the physics community, even though they have not completed anything they say they have thought. And it is important to know that. Okay. Four people are still awake. So here we go. Not count. You don't count. You went in and out at least three times. So did I. Okay, you were studying the inside of your eyes. So an optometrist, is that where we're headed? Good thinking. No. June the 9th, 2019, lecture discussion number 67 on the book of Joel. Yes, I know that's where we've been. uh, I, I know that where we've been lately may not seem to be the book of Joel. And my rebuttal is as you should expect. Uh, And that is that being contained solely to a singular book of Scripture is impossible. In other words, if you're reading the Bible correctly, you cannot contain yourself to a single book because of the way it explodes outward. It's impossible. The one who ultimately is the author, the creator of language, has placed into his word this magnificent interconnectivity you know what causes my atrial fibrillation? One of the aspects of atrial fibrillation, they believe, is the nose. There is a triggering system in the nose that controls the heart rate. I should give you my what mine looked like. This is, would be a typical system, almost a sine wave. Mine looked like this. That is literally what it looked like. And then it had a few that and 
So I'm staring at this little thing, and that's what I've got, and it tells me that I'm at 159. And the heart rate, it went up to 175. So this is Lori, this is me. There's a device in the in the nose that establishes the firing of the upper cavity, the atria. I believe. I am not a doctor. Don't trust me, but I'm learning as much about atrial fibrillation as I can. I should say really fast. We just learned that Mike T, um, if you know who he is, I don't want to use his name because I'm on the Internet, uh, but he also is in atrial fibrillation, fibrillation. He's in the hospital right now. So we're in a race to the bottom, apparently, me and Mike. Just as your body is interconnected, whoever made this body wrote this book. I can't say that enough. The interconnectivity is incredible. It's magnificent. And it's a reliance, if you will. In other words, if you can't find it, then you're mistaken because it relies on that as a Bible. The book of Joel is literally inseparable from the book of Revelation. So if you're going to read Joel, you have to read Revelation at the least. And Revelation is similarly attached to Genesis. Genesis is the first. Revelation is the last. The first and the last. So you will have to. You have to. You must. You cannot understand the book of Genesis without the book of Revelation. That's the kind of connection they have. And Genesis 3, of course, once you're into Genesis, you might as well go to Genesis 3, because if you're in Genesis 3, that is in a state of inseparability with Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is the testing of Christ, which is where we've been the last three weeks, and we'll be again today. Christ in the wilderness with Satan is absolutely Genesis 3. So both of them have to be read, if you will, simultaneously. And, of course... um, Once you're in Matthew 4 um, and Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is the trial of Adam and Eve where they are found, um, their sentence is commuted. They are given life where the, the serpent is tried and found to be condemned and he is given death. So I have a trial in Genesis 3. All of that material between, uh, uh, Adam and Eve and Christ in the garden and how the, how the, the, Sentences are, are, are delivered to the defendants, if you will. It is in a trial form, a legal system. So once you're doing that, now where are you? Well, you're in Acts 5. Because Acts 5 is the trial of Ananias. So my point is, is you collect all the trials now. And the first recorded trial is where? Yes, that's right. Genesis 3, 8 through 24, as we all know. I did that a little bit out of order. Expect me to be just disjointed today. Point is, is that it doesn't seem like we're in Joel, but we are in Joel. Chronologically, the trial of Satan. Let me just put this on the board for the Internet because I get a lot of questions about it. The trial of Satan is uh, Genesis 3, 8 through 20, or the whole trial, the recorded trial, is Genesis 3, 8 through 24 for both uh, Adam and Eve and Satan. But Satan is Genesis 3. 14 and 15. It's also Ezekiel 28. It's also Isaiah. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, Isaiah. Uh, I always spell Isaiah wrong. (sighs) 14. So let me get these right. 12 through 19. And 12 through 15. Those are the three places in Scripture that uh, are obviously discussing the trial of Satan where the serpent is condemned to crawl in the dust. So whenever you're beginning to figure out the trial of Satan, this is where you will be. And you're also going to have to put a timeline together. Where did the trial of Satan occur? Where did the fall of Satan occur? Where did the fall of the uh, angels occur in the timeline? And you can construct your own timeline, as I ask you to do. Just prepare yourself to defend it. Anyway, the point is, yea, a point on the first page. That's for Lucas. We are, in fact, discussing Joel 
because we're in Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is the beginning of Genesis 15, because Genesis 15 is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So that's what's going on there. Revelation, of course, is the end of that. This is the beginning. And we'll get to what the seed and the seed really start to mean. But hopefully all of you are familiar with it. But Revelation is the end of this. This is the first time it's mentioned. And, of course, it is culminated in Revelation. And we get to Joel and Revelation because of their connection, right? So Joel likewise describes the ending of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The the enmity of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent has two parts. So there's two parts to this. There's part one, if you will. And there's part two. I get paid a lot of money for this. One of them is the bruising. I'm sorry, is the bruising of the head. Ah. I'm doing that wrong. The bruising of the heel. And the other is the bruising of the head. They do not happen in the same time frame. They happen... There is a parenthesis between them, some will say. Some will not say this. I didn't put them up here necessarily chronologically. I put them up bisected so that you know there's two things going to happen. At the trial of Satan, Christ says to him, because Christ is the judge there. He's the ancient of days. He's the one presiding over the trial. He's the one that declares Adam and Eve to be covered in blood. Because of their confession, that's a very complicated story there. As you all know, I just keep repeating it because people will start listening to me from Antarctica of all places. So I got to deal with some of this. Point is now where I am, another point, yay. Two parts, bruising of the heel, bruising of the head, which comes first? The bruising of the head of the seed of the serpent by the seed of the woman and the bruising of the heel by the combination of Satan and his seed. Notice how I worded that. The judge, the ancient of days, who condemns Satan, tells Satan at the trial that Satan is going to be fatally wounded. The bruising of the head is a fatal wound. He shall bruise your head, Christ says to Satan. So obviously when? When does he bruise Satan's head? The ewer in that sentence is the serpent. It is Satan himself. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel, it says. I have to fix something here really fast so that I don't make the mistake again. Again, the you in that you shall bruise his heel. Again, the you is Satan himself. So Satan is going to bruise the heel of Christ and Christ is going to fatally wound Satan's head. And that's why I said how there's a combination of Satan and his seed. Thus, it, it remains to determine how it is that Satan is physically killed. Again, I gave you my theory. There is a combination of Satan and his seed. And that is how the Satan is physically killed. That is my position. I'll be able to defend it. And you also have to, we have to determine the scope and the definition of the bruising of the heel of the God-man, Jesus Christ. How do I bruise the heel of God? It's called the God-wounding paradox. How is an omnipotent being wounded? Because it describes a physical wound. Or does it? If you prefer to hear it this way, it's called the dashing of the foot. Psalm 91, 12. But you know it also as Matthew 4, don't you? Or the striking of the heel. The striking of the heel, you would know from what? Where are the heels struck? Start collecting all the heel strikes. 
The striking of the heel, a wound as inflicted by a poisonous snake. Now where am I? I'm in Numbers 21. So, uh, again, to repeat this a bit, when and where and how did Satan accomplish the dashing of the foot of Christ? When did he accomplish it? How did he accomplish it? It might be important to figure that out as soon as we can in order to get a level of understanding of all of this. Anyway, hopefully it is obvious that Mark 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, which is the testing of Christ in the wilderness, it's the confrontation of Christ and Satan. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks. Hopefully, it's obvious that that does provide crucial information to Genesis 3. And therefore, because of the, the attachment of Genesis 3 in the book of Revelation, it goes to, it sends us to Revelation and therefore to the book of Joel. So that's how everything we have done is the book of Joel. Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. You have to know that. He's always that way. The ancient, he's the ancient of days who is the judge. He is the judge of Satan and Satan's angels. He is the one that tells them that he made the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41, for them, for Satan and his angels, and he intends to put them in there. That he's already rendered that verdict and issued that sentence. That's happened in Genesis 3. So that's in, and the, the serpent who is in that position, who has that sentence around him, is in the wilderness with Christ. And Christ says to the serpent, Matthew 4, 7, after Satan invoked Psalm 91, 10 through 12, and he omitted Psalm 91, 13, Satan says Psalm 91, 10 through 12, and he omits 91, 13. Jesus Christ says to him in response. Now, in response, I have God himself, who is outside of time, who is the creator of time, is allowing himself to be in a time, uh, to appear as though he is inside of time. That's an important thing. God is the uncreated one. Time is created. Jesus Christ quotes Deuteronomy 6, 16. So, so. Satan says, throw yourself down. You won't. God will send his angels to stop you from hurting your foot. Dashing your foot. And Christ says back to him, Deuteronomy 6.16 and Exodus 17.1 through 7. Put those on the board. So Satan says this. Christ says this, uh, 17, 1 through 7, and Deuteronomy 6, 16. So here I have, face to face, Christ and Satan having a discussion that we cannot possibly understand, and this is how it's going. I've a minute eliminated the stone in the bread for today because I did most of that last week. I'll finish that a little bit this week if the creeks don't rise. Satan says 91, 12. Christ says Deuteronomy 6.16 and Exodus 17.1 through 7. So that's how they began. So for you to understand what they're saying, you have to, I keep saying that, I need to go there. For some reason, God himself, the God-man, Jesus God, thought Deuteronomy 6.16 and therefore Exodus 17.1 through 7 was the exact perfect refutation of Psalm 91.10 through 12 as Satan presented it. Is he right? I would think that God is right about this. Just saying. So we should attempt to search it out. The why and the how of all of that. So let's do that. Let's go. Let me read it really fast because I have... You folks that may not be, haven't been here, this is the place where the elders come up and ask you for money. 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, the tester in this case, since or if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the Satan took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he says, Psalm ninety-one, twelve. He shall give his angels charge over you. In other words, if you throw yourself down, his angels, God will send angels and they will catch you. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So we're now talking about the bruising of the heel. Satan brings up Genesis 3. Jesus said to him, it is written, again, you shall not... Test the Lord your God. So he's bringing up Deuteronomy 6.16 and Exodus 7.1-7. through 7. Everybody on the bus. He's also bringing up Numbers 21.5-7, through 7, but we'll get to that in a minute. So let's reestablish the order as best I can. God and Satan are face to face to repeat. It's my opinion that Satan reveals that he does not know that he, who he's talking to. He has not considered the mystery of godliness or the hypostatic union and does not know that Jesus Christ is creator God himself. Doesn't know it at this point. think it's evident from what we can figure out based on what he says. So he doesn't know this is God. This is the one who created him. He doesn't know that. Though Satan may be aware of the vast differences between Jesus who is the second Adam, who just says that he is the last Adam, the second Adam, and the first Adam, the first human. He may notice intuitively that there's something greatly different between this Adam, who he got to, he, who he succeeded against, and the first Adam. In other words, the, he, he successfully caused the death of Adam in a sense. But he may have recognized this one, this second Adam that has replaced that Adam, is certainly more formidable. So, Satan begins with stones and bread. Essentially, what is he saying? He's discussing physics. That's why we have to learn string theory. He's saying, change the atomic structure of this mineral into organic. What's required? How, how many chemistry students do I have in here? What's required to change a rock into, a, into bread from an atomic standpoint. And again, to repeat from last week, this is the two Edens, the fiery stone Eden that Satan controlled in Ezekiel 28, 13 through 14, and the vegetable Eden that Adam was given authority over, Genesis 2, 9 through, or 7 through 9. So I have two Edens, Satan's fiery Eden, let me put that word up here, And the organic Eden, or the vegetable. That's how they're discussed in the Bible. Ah, struggling here. So I have a vegetable Eden and a fiery Eden, or a fiery stone Eden. And and the two Edens that's being discussed, Satan brings them up when he says stones into bread. He understands the difference between the structures of the two Edens because he was in control of the first one before he fell. And Adam was given the same location, but it was converted into a vegetable Eden. So he is bringing up the two Edens here as he should because he was the king of the fiery Eden. And he has seen the vegetable Eden supplant him, if you will. But again, the two Edens are the canopy or the overview. I'd better best describe it as the basin in which the other particulars, the fragments of this discussion are carried. And there are many pieces to this discussion. We should anticipate it. Satan and Jesus God speak to each other at an incredible level. And they don't explain things to each other. Why not? They don't, they don't simplify it for one another. Why not? Because they don't. One is the 
most incredible, intelligent creature ever made by God. The other one is the God who made him. And they didn't write it at the kindergarten level. And they didn't disclose it to the Holy or to the, the, author, the Holy Spirit didn't disclose it to Matthew to write it at an elementary level. We have to understand what we're looking at when reading the interactions of Christ and Satan and Judas, for that matter, because Satan enters Judas. When reading the interactions of Christ, Satan and Judas expect the conversations to be succinct. Yet, nevertheless, unimaginably complex. That's what you should, how you should, and yes, I know, yet nevertheless is a redundancy. So don't write me, you folks. Okay, write me. I've not reached my reduplication limit. You're allowed, lecture regulations allow for three redundancies. I should make a redundancy box. Yet nevertheless is a redundancy. I concede it. So before you interdictionary word grammar police descend on me from the Internet and issue your usual fines with your pomposity. Uh, note that I get two more. And I am a reckless daredevil. Ooh, I'm on the edge now, aren't I? I know I'm right there. I like I'm I'm just. On the razor now, how can I stop myself? I can, I can make them cry, the grammarians that do this. I can. Watch me. Uh, it's like holy water to uh, vampires. I'll just do it right now. Free gift. Mm-hmm. As everyone knows, though, free gift is not a redundancy. They think it's a redundancy, but we know better. We know free gift means the gift is actually really free. Right? As opposed to just free. And for those of you with phone calculators, you can start figuring out what I'm going to do next. I've already got, I'm right on. Feel free to search up my Redundancies, as I'm speaking them now, you folks on the Internet, you can itemize the list. How's that? Okay. Where am I? What page? Satan begins with if or since. Notice how I'm saying that, because that deciding if it's if or since is going to be critical as we go along here. If or since you are the Son of God, manipulate this material atomic, or I'm sorry, this mineral atomic structure to an organic atomic structure. And that's incredible. He's asking him, he says it literally, command that these stones become bread. In other words, change the bread or the stone into bread. That's very, very unusual thing for him to say, to rephrase it, to repeat it from last week. Satan did not ask Jesus Christ to speak the bread into existence from nothingness, which is what he did in Genesis 1, correct? That's what God did there. He does it. This is the Word of God. Literally, he is the Word made flesh. Why wouldn't Satan say to him, Instead of just change the rock into a piece of bread, why doesn't he say or command the rock into a piece of bread? Manipulate the atomic structure because he has this rock in Luke, a specific rock. These rocks in Matthew, specific rocks as well. But he didn't. Manipulate instead of speak into existence bread. I wish we had, that's great importance. I wish we had more time for it. We don't. Christ responds, and this is the creator of time, the timeless one who is outside of time. Time has has no impact on him at all. He's participating in restricted time, if you follow what I'm saying there. In other words, we're we're in restricted time. Time has control, if you want to think of it that way, over us. We cannot get out of time in spite of television. We can't go through time. Time is inviolable. The past is inviolable. That's a basic physics construction. It's very simple to explain why you cannot go back in time. Information theory, if you're interested in that, and I've covered it before. 
Are you, is she playing with a toy? Can I have a toy to play with? Is it keeping her quiet? It might keep me quiet. Have you thought of that? Only one pacifier. You should know better. You could have 15 or 20. You could sell them here. It's an economic opportunity, I'm just saying. No, I, pacifier is intriguing to me, I think. Then. Okay. Just understand that Christ is participating in this as if he is inside of time. He's allowing the call and the answer order. If you ever get into blues playing the blues, you'll have one instrument will play a call. The other instrument will answer. That's what's happening here. There's a call and the answer. Satan issues the call. Christ issues the answer. And it appears that he's doing it inside of time. But he can't be doing it inside of time because he's not inside of time. Anyway, so Jesus says to this, mankind shall not have life by bread alone. I changed it a little bit. It's really, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he's the word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So you live by him. Satan has no idea who he's talking to. I can prove it uh, just by how he responds backwards or calls again. Thus, immediately, we're able to recognize the framework of Satan's question to be because of the life. Man does not live. We're talking about life here. If we're talking about life, we're talking about existence. Man has existence. The angels have existence. That's Genesis 3. Satan goes to the woman and says, you really do not have existence. You think you do, but you have an illusion of existence, and I will prove it to you if you eat from this tree. I also believe that the angels, the only ones watching this discussion, as you know, are the angels and the animals. There's no human beings here. So when Satan is talking about existence, he is not talking about mankind as much as he's talking about the angels, because this is this... This is an event that no angel missed. And I think the evidence is obvious. So once you begin to recognize this is about the definition of life alone. What is life alone? How does man have life? What is life? Is life physical? Is it spiritual as Christ or as God so defines? What is the origin of existence? existence? From whom does existence flow? What is the makeup of, of existence? I've said thousands and thousands of times, if you think existence is temporary, then you don't have existence. You have a temporary state that is just waiting to be revealed as extinguishment. Your extinguishment is in time. You really don't have anything. It's meaningless. It's hopeless. You have nothingness waiting to become nothingness. God says the opposite in his scripture. He says you have life. You have existence. It came from my breath. Therefore, it is eternal. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be altered. What is at stake is your destination where you choose to reside in eternity. So we see this natural progression in Satan's next step. The counter, if you will, to this. Um, Christ makes an answer about life. He make, brings up life, and so Satan counters. He brings up the accusation of Genesis 3 through Psalm 21 or 91. You do not have free will, he says. Throw yourself down. You don't have free will. The angels will catch you. You can't die. So we don't have a fair fight here. This is supposed to be seed versus seed, but it's rigged. And it's rigged because there's no free will in you. You cannot choose to do anything. You're pre-programmed. You're an automaton. That's who he accuses Christ of. He doesn't know it's God. Or he wouldn't have done that. He regrets it later. Lots of things he doesn't know. He has the same problem at the crucifixion. That's why Judas throws the money to the potter, the silver to the potter, Zechariah 12. 
because they could not catch up fast enough. They catch up really quick because they're incredible compared to us. But you can find their errors. Those of you on the Internet who ask me about Satan uh, and think that he he causes sin in you, he is not omnipresent and you are not important to him. So all of this Flip Wilson stuff that I brought up last week, the devil made me do it. No, that's you. Get a mirror. <sighs> Obvious immediate question. How does man have life? How does this refute the existence charge that we do not have existence of Genesis 3? So we see this progression in Satan's next step, the counter to what Christ says. You do not have free will. Free will is an inseparable component of existence. If you don't have free will, you don't have existence. You cannot throw yourself down unto death because God will not allow it. Therefore, God is what? Faking it. He is pretending that you have existence. So that makes God a what? A liar. That makes him evil. And therefore, the two trees in the Garden of Eden are not real. The choice was never there. It was a rigged choice. That is, we're beginning to develop, formulate the satanic lie. And hopefully everyone here, and I know you don't, because I can see um, a few of you have been brought here against your will. You have will. That's great. It's good to have will. If you don't have will, you don't have existence. You could leave, but we have a buffet, and you've gone this far. Might as well stick it out for the buffet. That's a, we got lots of stuff back there that I can't eat. So I am no competition for you here in about 15, 20 minutes. I should have said two hours, but then everybody would panic. I see you trying to hold me back back there. She stands up and does something with her hands. It isn't appropriate. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay. Where am I? Who remembers? Hopefully me. I have an excuse. If you don't understand the formulation of the satanic lie, and it has many aspects to it. I've just given you a rough outline of it, but I've done it because people here and most of the ones on the Internet that follow the vast Internet audience, of which there are tens of thousands. There really are tens of thousands, aren't there? It's crazy. And somebody in Antarctica. See me afterwards. I can explain it to you. For for today, just note the seed of the woman element, the bruising of the heel. Let me put this to you. Is the bruising of the heel happening at Matthew 4? Because we have to figure out where the bruising of the heel is. And we have to figure out where the bruising... We don't have to. We're supposed to. We ought to. We'll be held accountable if we don't. Learn about your God and how he thinks. He created you. So figure out where the bruising of the head is and figure out where the bruising of the heel is. Do you think, raise your hand, never raise your hand here, that this is the bruising of the heel? Matthew 4. Is Christ, did he dash his foot against the stone in a metaphorical way? Certainly didn't do it physical. Does Satan believe he is inflicting the bruising of the heel in this discussion? Does he think that he's going to inflict the bruising of the heel? He knows he gets to and he wants to. He's a little worried about that fatal wound of the head. He has a plan to avoid that. But does he think he's causing the bruising of the heel to the seed of the woman? He has obviously figured out this is the seed of the woman because he saw the Holy Spirit. He saw the shepherds. He saw the court of Daniel. There aren't three kings. That's a lie. There are thousands of them. There's three gifts. Each one of those gifts mean this is this baby is God himself. So throw out all of your pictures and And little thingies that you bought for hundreds of dollars that you can't find anymore. What do they call those things? You would know. A diorama or something like that. Am I right? When I put all the little figures. No, that's not it. I put all the little figurines on a thing and I have three kings that never existed. A nativity scene. Yes, but it's also you, you make it in a box or something, too, and it's called something else. Am I right? Diorama. Thank you for being able to confirm my brilliance. 
That's what you're here for. <laughs> I do. Fifty bucks a sermon. It's really, really getting outrageous. Okay. Christ answers Deuteronomy 6.16 and Exodus 17.1 through 7. Testing God. You shall not test the Lord your God. And we know how many things about Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4. We know how many pieces are in here. And somewhere in there, they must, there must be something that connects to Deuteronomy 16. There's six sixteens in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And I alluded to last Sunday in my usual obfuscatory manner. This is the key. It's the test of God by Israel. I didn't read it on purpose last week. I should read it now. Let's see if I want to. Okay, let's just go really fast there to Exodus 17. Get out of order a bit, and hopefully I'm a professional enough to find my way back. This is what they said. Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's what Israel says to God. And God says, why do you test me? Christ quotes, why do you test the Lord your God? He quotes that to Satan when Satan says you can't kill yourself. You don't have free will. You don't have existence. Christ answers back, Exodus 17, where Israel says, why is it that you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I didn't read this last week, and I'll read it this week. And the children of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. That's incredible. There it is. There's the solution to what they're talking about in Matthew 4, about the stone and the bread. They ate manna. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. That is Christ's way of saying, man has life. When he says, when he brings up the eight manna and an omer is one-tenth of an ephah, he is responding to Satan's accusation that God never created existence. So crystallizing the pieces of information and uh, that then introduced Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Let's try this a bit. The testing of God. What exactly was Israel's testing of God? He said, why do you test me, Israel? And they say, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our animals? That's the definition of testing God, is that statement. When Christ is talking to Satan, he brings up Exodus 17, 1 through 7, saying that Satan is testing him in the exact same manner. Does that make sense? What Israel said to God and what Satan are saying to, says to God at Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4 is the same. Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock? That is the accusation. And that's saying that the God of Israel through Moses is a lying, murdering ghoul. His whole purpose is to bring Israel out into the wilderness and kill them all. He creates an illusion of life for the singular purpose of extinguishing the illusion of life. That's the accusation. And you don't say that to God. Do not say that to me. So putting the pieces now in maybe a coherent form. Satan begins with existence. He asserts that Christ himself has no will. The seed of the woman, therefore, is going to be an invention of God as a means of camouflaging the true natures of the angels, men, and beasts. In other words, there is no true life. There's merely a hopeless illusion of life. And Jesus issues corrections, refutes Satan's premise. Man has life from the breath of God. As God lives, man lives. Therefore, the question becomes, does God really live? You decide. Remember the God is dead bumper stickers? Raise your hand. Never raise your hand here. See what they're doing? They never knew what they were doing. 
Deuteronomy 6.4, 616. Let me let me go to 616 really fast and establish that. Where is it? I'm a professional. I'll find it here in a half hour. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's 6-4. That is what sets up. That is what sets up 6-16. You shall not test the Lord your God as you tested him in Massa. Massa is where the Israels tested Christ or tested God with that you have brought us out here to die. They did it all the time. They also do it in Numbers 21. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And you shall not test me like you did in Massa, where it is 17, 1 through 7 of Exodus. Don't call me a murderer. You shall love the Lord your God. Why shall you love the Lord your God? Why would you love the Lord your God? Because he created you? Lots of people hate him for that. Why do you love him? Remember that Christ is a searcher of your mind and your heart, Revelation 2.23. Why shall we love the Lord our God? He says, because I am the triune God. Why do we love the triune God? Becomes the question that the, you know, you're in, a, you're in an argument here with a child, right? Why, 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 why? One is unity in that passage. It's not monotheism. That's for the Internet. How does this fit? Christ quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not test the Lord your God as you did in Massa. Exodus 17.7 again. It was Massa that Israel accuses their Lord of being a psychopathic killer. And then they ended with this. Is the Lord among us or not, they say. That is testing God. Is the Lord among you or not? What does among you or not mean? The testing of God is to repeat the blasphemy of Israel at Massa, which is what Satan did at Matthew 4 and Luke 4. says you don't have existence and God's a psychopath that just wishes to kill everyone. This is a toy that he ends up just destroying for the fun of it. And God says, you must love God. Why must you love God? Let's just really quick go over a few things because I have five or six minutes and only 12, 14 pages to go. How many Israelites are here? There's millions, millions of them. At least two million. And then I have the foreigners that came out of Egypt with them. Millions of Jews and those who came with the Jews from Egypt, they're in the desert. They have food for 40 years. They have food. Everyone has an omer. The omer becomes important. It's a measure of dry goods, if you will, dry volume. It's about three-eighths of a or a half of a bushel. So they have bread. Exodus 16, 16. They get they get essentially a half a, 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 of a bushel of manna every day and twice that on the sixth day. So millions of people, everyone has food, everyone has bread in the desert. Go to Matthew 4. Where are we? We're in the desert. What are we talking about? Bread. Begin to see the same story repeat. I need not remind you of John 6:32 through 33, Christ calls himself the, this true bread from heaven that they went out and got an omer of every day for 40 years. They never, they never had any hunger problems at all. For bread, for the bread of God is me, Christ says, who comes down from heaven. I am the bread of life, he says. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, John 6.35. Hunger, thirst, bread. That's what's going on in Matthew 4, because we're in the desert. And in 17.7, they're complaining. They don't, they, you brought us out here to die of what? 
thirst. What does God do? What does Moses do? He kills the rock and out of the dead rock comes living water. That's a picture of Christ. So they were thirsty. They had bread, but they hate it, Numbers 21. So hunger, thirst, bread, hunger, thirst, bread. Or if you want to think of it this way, hunger, water, bread, hunger, water, bread. They're in both places in the right, in the correct order, sort of. Notice how I said that. Christ is the living bread and the living water. He's the bread of life. He's the water of life. That's John 6, 48 through 51. John 14, 4. Or I'm sorry, 4, 14. And John 7, 38. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4. Hunger and water. Hunger and thirst. There is no food or water in the desert, they say to God in Numbers 21, 5. They say there's no food here. There's no water here. They've had bread for falling out of the sky. They call the bread there, Numbers 21, worthless. They hate the bread. Who's the bread? That's Christ. They hate Christ. They hate the worthless bread, which is a symbol of Jesus Christ. All of these pieces are in Matthew 4. Change this stone in the bread in the desert. Why do millions of people hate the worthless bread? There's no food. They're right. There's no food. There's no water. He hits a rock. Water comes out of the rock. How do you get water out of the rock? Do you think there's a spring under the rock? There's not. Water comes right out of the rock. How do I get water out of the rock? What is water? Hydrogen and what else? You can do this. It's seventh grade. How do I get two gases out of a rock? That's what happened. Make this... yeah. Make this water, or make this rock into water, or make this stone into bread. I have water and bread. Atomic manipulation, if you wish to call it that. There is no bread in the desert. Did you think you walked out into the desert and found a loaf of wonder bread? It didn't happen. Wonder Corporation did not get into the desert with their bread. There's no possibility that millions of people could survive in the desert without food or water. Yet they did for 40 years. They did not die from hunger or thirst. They died from serpents. But in Numbers 21, and they died from old age, Numbers 21, which I have, don't remind me. Numbers 21, 5, they loathe the bread. The only food, the bread of life, they hate it. The one who walked in the midst of the fiery stones in Ezekiel 28, he is a poisonous serpent and he inflicts torment and death to those who refuse to believe in Christ Jesus. And he starts killing them because they say this to God. Why does Satan start killing them? And remember, Moses holds, he gets a fiery serpent, he puts it in bronze, he holds it up. It's a picture of Christ, John 3. People die because they hate the bread. None should die. Jesus Christ, by invoking the declaration of the nation of Israel at Exodus 17.3, connects it to the tests of Satan at Matthew 4 and Luke 4. He says there is an equivalency. Therefore, the lie. God has created life to kill it. And if we do not have, and therefore we do not have existence... We are annihilated at death. And that's the essence of Exodus 17.3. And it's replicated at Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Which means that the lie given to the woman at Genesis 3.4 and the angels at Ezekiel 28.16 is also the same. And hopefully some of that made sense. I'm going to give a list because of the internet. Here's your list. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. That's the two trees going in order to figure out what's going on in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the two trees. Genesis 3, 4, that's Satan and the woman. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, that is seed versus seed, the head and the heel. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. That's the condemnation of Satan. Deuteronomy 8.3, that's man will not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not test me like Israel did when they called me a murderer. Numbers 21, 
There's no water and no food in the desert. That tells you that when Christ is in the desert, does he have any water for 40 days? He has no water for 40 days. Satan figured out, okay, this guy can go without water and without food for 40 days. That's pretty remarkable. So who is he? Matthew 4, bread and stones. Luke 4, bread and stone. Mark 1, the animals and the angels. Exodus 17, God is a killer. Rock, water comes, is, a rock is turned into water. And everyone, millions of people, how big a rock do you think that was? It makes your picture. Did you see the movie? I have to get, I have to get water to two million people. Have you ever gone to the wastewater facility here? How much water do you need to get to two million people? How much bread do you need? And they're moving around. Make this bread from stone, he says. Don't cause bread to come from the air. From the Anyway. Ezekiel 28:16 This is the abundance of your traffic. He, this is Satan's lie when he begins to lie to the angels. Psalm 91 uh, from 1 through 12. John 6:31 through 58. That's the bread of life and the living bread and John 7 uh, 37 through 38. That's living water. Those are all the same thing. That's all of it is the same. Finally, is, and everybody loves finally, is God among us or not? Why are you commanded to love him? He says, love me. That seems a little bit narcissistic, doesn't it? Why would you love him? Because he's good. He says, I am always good. I'll cover this next week, no time today. I'm always good. Love what is good. What's your choice? You don't love something. Love good or love what? Evil. I'm good. This is good and evil. Does that sound familiar? Two trees. Back we go. Knowing the difference between good and evil. Do you know the difference between good and evil? Chances are we don't because we watch TV. We read papers. Well, we don't have papers anymore. I just dated myself. Uh, one gentleman, Luke, uh, said that I was, his, I was like, it was like Bob Hope uh, doing theology. And that, that tells us how old Luke is, doesn't it? And Bob Hope died 15 years ago at what, age 100. So if that's uh, Luke's uh, example of a contemporary uh, comedian, well then, uh, that's not good news for me, is it, ultimately? <laughs> All of that that I gave you is the same. I wish I could put it on the board. I don't. Is God among us or not? What does it mean that God is among us or not? How does it relate to God being a murdering fiend, as Satan says? As the world says, really quick, the most common refrain from the atheistic evolutionary philosophy community is that they won't follow God of the Bible because he's what? He's evil. They say it all the time, relentlessly. He causes death. He kills children. He is evil. That's what they say. That's the evolutionary, philosophical, uh, atheistic platform, fundamental platform. And every atheist purports to believe that all living beings are temporal. That you talk to an atheist, and I have debated them, and I had children in the front row. I said, tell your son that, that when his dog dies, when he dies, when you die, that's extinguishment. And so the man looked at his son and said, when you die, when I die, it's, we go to nothingness. That's evolutionary atheism. That is what they believe. That's what they teach the children in the school. That is hopelessness. Purposelessness. It's misery. That's the lie of Satan as it is delineated and exposed in Exodus 17, 1 through 7, and Matthew 4 in the confrontation between God and Satan. That is the lie of Satan in Ezekiel 28, 16, that he told the angels to get them to fall. 
He created hopelessness and despair in them. You can love hopelessness and despair, or you can love he that is life and good. Them's the choices. Life and existence is eternal. All who come to Christ. But the atheist will tell you it is a myth. Evolutionary philosophy is exactly that of Exodus 17.3. All evolutionists loathe Christ. They call him the worthless bread. They just don't know it. Anyway, is the Lord among us or not? I'm obviously suggesting that this phrase, is the Lord among us or not, is what Israel said. And that phrase, therefore, is Matthew 4.4. That's what I'm telling you it is. What is Matthew 4.4? Better read it to make sure I get it right. Man shall not live by bread alone. Notice what he said. Shall not what? Why didn't he say shall not die? Man shall not live as he defines live by bread alone. I'm saying to you, is God among us or not? And man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the breath of God. I'm telling you, those are the same. Man shall not have life except from the breath of Christ. Is life among us or not? Do we have the breath or not? It's a yes or no question. I made it. You made it, actually. It's really impressive. You do get a ribbon.